Bandwidth for this week in photography is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is brought to you by Drobo. Find out how you can get your own Drobo at drobo.com slash twip. This week on the show, Alex lets me, Frederick, try the host gig, tethered shooting, what's it good for, and ethics of pixel punishing. Right here on This Week in Photography, number 65. Hey everybody! Um, this is a new voice here it's on new. on this week in photography. It's me, Frederick. Um, Alex, really uh, Alex made the mistake of uh, giving me the reins today to host the show, <laughs> <laughs> but he's uh, he's sitting right here with his uh, with his little ruler just in case I, I veer too far off course. Yeah, I was going to say I kind of picture him standing off stage right now with the the sort of hook thing that he can he's reach gonna, out. And he's standing in the light. corner with his arms crossed, looking very uh, you know. <laughs> Very condescendingly at me now. No, uh, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna host today's show and see how that goes. And uh, but who do, who do we have on the show today? I think it's Ron. Got the Ron, sir. Where, uh, you're, you're, so the first thing you've got to do is is figure out where I'm at. Yeah. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me start that again. And it's always okay. Redonda Beach. Let me start that again. Okay, Ron, where where in the world are you? <laughs> I'm in Hermosa Beach today. <laughs> <laughs> Not Redondo Beach. <laughs> No. Some sort of beach. Some sort of beach in Southern California. South of me. I don't go south. Is there some sort of rivalry between uh, Redondo and Hermosa? You know, it's one of those things where if you live near the beach, then you don't go anywhere you know, away from the beach or south of the beach. Or yeah. Something like that. Got it. <laughs> and uh, Alex, I kind of know where you are, but people don't know where you are. Where are you? I'm, I'm about four feet from you. <laughs> <laughs> and where are we? We are in the Pixel Core. Yeah, we're in the Pixel Core in San Francisco. And also on the line is Aaron. Aaron, where where are you calling from? Um, my usual place in Virginia, be, uh, Little Sweetbriar, Virginia. Now soon you'll be in uh, you'll be in DC, right? Yep, I'm heading up to DC on Monday morning. Um, nice. Ticket in hand for the inauguration, thanks to one of our senators. That, that's just an amazing feat. Uh, it, I saw those pictures that you sent over. That how how does one manage to get a ticket to the most sought after event of the century? Um, I feel really honored. I, I got the call um, end of last week, actually, from uh, Senator Webb's office that uh, that they had a ticket available for me to uh, to come up to see inauguration, which I just am <laughs> thrilled to be going. I'll be taking photos for the Democratic Party of Virginia and for myself and for others, and while I'm up there as well, um, be there all day Monday, uh, Monday night, Tuesday for the event itself, and probably not coming back till Wednesday. So, cool. planning to do a lot of street photography and all as well because it's going to be a zoo in DC. Not much question about it. You know, you posting all the time so that folks oh, yeah. can see it. I'll try and get stuff up um, both Monday and Tuesday at some points during the day and the evening. Um, so I'll put them up on Half Press, halfpress.com, and I may mirror them to my uh, to my political photo blog too, which has been kind of. Uh, in hibernation for quite a while, but um, going to be coming back in force. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So, what, what kind of gear are you taking out there? Just curious. I'm wondering, like for for an event that is not repeatable, what kind of gear does a person take out there? Well, um, my usual uh, usual roster of gear. Um, I have to. There's going to take a little planning here in the process too, because I'm certainly taking everything up, and I 
got very, very fortunate, too, that a close friend of mine just uh, gave me her apartment for the time that I'm there, which is three blocks from the steps of the Capitol. So I'm actually going to be right in the thick of things, so I can run back and forth pretty easily and get equipment as I need without dealing so much with the security issues that are going to lock the city down. And uh, so I'll have a couple of cannon bodies with me uh, that I usually have, and I've also augmented my current uh, L-class lenses that I use with a couple that I rented from uh, lensrentals.com. Picked up a uh, 100 to 400 f 4.5 L, uh, which, as I was mentioning earlier, it's one of the first push-pull lenses I've used. So uh, it feels a bit like playing a trombone when I'm uh, zooming in and out with it, but because uh, it gets a little long. But I'm going to need the reach because I don't know where I'll be some of the time. So uh, and also uh, the kind of de facto standard professional lens out there is the 70 to 200 f mm-hmm. 2.8 L IS, and both of these, by the way, that are rented are IS lenses. So uh, really looking forward to using those. And right, I'll have cool. those with me in addition to the others that I carry and a fisheye lens and a few other things. But the trick's going to be the fact that I'm not allowed to carry any camera bags or anything with me into the ticket and security areas. Hmm. So I'll be carrying the bodies open and um, probably have lenses in pockets or something, just whatever I can get Cargo away pants. with. Yep. Yep. Cargo exactly. pants, photo vest, all that good stuff. Well, the, yeah, the photo vest, the twip jacket. The, the photo vest is going to be a little tricky, too, because it's going to probably be in the 20s most of the morning while I'm there. So I'll probably be wearing that on top of something else. So I'm going to look like an idiot. <laughs> well, with all that gear running around like you're going to be running around, I don't think you're going to have to worry about heat. You'll yeah. be generating enough on your <laughs> Probably. <laughs> with that the, the three million people, people standing yeah. In, yeah, in the Washington Mall. So Yeah, yeah it's yeah. going to be interesting. Well, before yeah. we before we uh, jump into the, the news section, there's a little housekeeping. Um, so, Alex, how do you generally do this piece with the, the linking contest? There's a linking contest. It's twitphoto.com. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah, usually I just, as I'm talking, I just got this link at twitphoto.com. You can win a pa- free package of Scott's 88 secret books or one, one year premium, premium subscription to lens.com. Do I have to say it with that buttery voice like that? Or? No, you know, you don't have to. That's, that's just what I, that's, that's the way I do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the uh, Aperture Nature Photography Contest is, is ongoing. I think they're doing it right now. Yeah, they're they're, where are they? they're in Yosemite right now. Right? Are they in Yosemite? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So they're yeah. they're they're pushing that so, stuff through. Yeah. Next round of April, patients. I believe. I think may, maybe April is the next opening or something yeah. along those lines. And then the other big item, of course, is Drobo. We've got a discount on Drobos. Uh, you go to the Drobo, Drobo store. Drobostore dot com, and then just use the coupon code TWIP. You don't have to go to Drobostore dot com slash TWIP. Right. I said that. Some, at some point in time. You want to make sure you correct that? Yeah. <laughs> it was a mistake. Go to the drobostore.com and enter the coupon code TWIP. It's in red in the show notes here. So. <laughs> Large <laughs> font. Too. You should have used the you flash sure tag on it. We didn't forget it. <laughs> so. It's in there twice, too. To make sure. That, that, that We're just reminding people because people have emailed us saying that it I went to drobostore.com slash twip and there's nothing there. <laughs> so uh, so you have to use the coupon code. You guys lied to me. <laughs> so the other, the, this, this thing, this next thing, or the first thing at the top of the news just sort of blew me away. You know you've, you've made it, or I don't know if we've made it, but you know you're relatively popular when you have your own theme music and it's available on iTunes. Yes. Right? So, pretty exciting. So yeah, we wanted to give a big shout out to Scott how do you pronounce that, Aaron? Canizaro. Canizaro. Yeah, he wrote the theme music to the show, which you've just heard. And you need to go buy it if you're listening. Scott put his he put his heart and he put his tears into our into our 
theme. Uh, it has been uh, it has been we, taking care of us for a long time here, and you can now buy it on 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 uh, on iTunes, and it's ninety nine cents. So just go up. I just sit and do it constantly, just yeah. it, you know, constant rotation in the background. Can I just leave it up for the whole show every time I you know pop in. Okay, who's playing it? Are you playing it? Hold on. Yeah, it's me. It's falling Sorry. apart. It's falling apart on our side. Yeah, I, the, heard, uh, I heard nothing. It's, <laughs> you're not doing a lot to sell that song. <laughs> It really does sound better than that. It does sound. If, if you've heard the beginning, and the thing is, what you want to think about is you just you just put that on your on your iPod, and you just play it when you're taking photos. No matter where, you're just walking through the street, and it'll just kind of give you a good bump. Yeah, it's your power song for your Nike Plus. Exactly. Know, hit that. Exactly. Okay. So, but definitely uh, give uh, uh, give Scott some support. Go up to uh, iTunes and pick up the song. Yeah, and I think we're gonna have a link to his song directly in the show notes as well. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, next up. This was really cool. So the the first presidential portrait, uh, or not the first presidential portrait, but the first presidential portrait of President-elect Barack Obama was shot, A, digitally for the first time in history, and B, uh, with a Canon EOS 5D Mark II. So I don't know if that leads some or, or lends some credibility to that body as if it needed it, but uh, that was pretty cool. So Aaron, is, are you shooting with a 5D Mark II when you're, when you're shooting the inauguration? I would love to, but I challenge you to find one somewhere <laughs> at the moment. The presidential, uh, the presidential photographer had that, a little bit of uh, an in to getting that camera sooner rather than. <laughs> well, there, there's another know, I, link. A bunch of people have them. I don't, are they really that scarce, or is it just you know in certain areas? As far as but, I can tell, they're pretty scarce. At evidently, the, the area um, that they're hard to find is the internet. Oh, the yeah. world? Oh, the this world. Planet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This it's Earth. But if you go to the moon, evidently there's a stockpile. Yeah, I bet you, I bet you Scott <laughs> Bourne could find one. Well, yeah. <laughs> has anybody, uh, has anybody examined the, the presidential? Exactly. Has anybody examined the presidential photo for little black dots next to highlights? Mm, no. <laughs> uh, didn't they fix that in the firmware update, though? No, they mitigated it. Mitigated. Yeah, the, uh, terminology <laughs> they used. They, they looked for a dark spot, and then they filled it with white. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, now everyone's eyes look like they're glowing. You can forget about that evaluation 5D unit you were hoping for. <laughs> yeah, I will happily retract the statement if a 5D Mark II shows up at my door. And I yeah, be happy with the G10 they'll send over for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that brings up the question. So the, the photographers that, that actually work and are assigned to the president in the White House, what what is their job? Because I, I Twittered about this. It was like, you know, is It'd be kind of boring. It seems like after the first, I don't know, year, if you were if you were trapped in the White House taking pictures of the of the of president, you know, okay, he's in the Oval Office, oh, he's having dinner or whatever. What what do these guys do beyond that, or do they travel, or what's the deal? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I actually heard uh, an interview on NPR on, with one of the guys that uh, that deals with it, and uh, you know, his point was that he the main thing that they're doing is trying to put some historical context around it. So it's not just about here's the the glamour photo of the president, you know, up close and personal. It's more what's what's the entire scenario around him, you know, what's going on around it. So it's you know, it's very much a documentary sort of thing of of seeing the entire scene and not just a, a photo of a single person. Mm-hmm. Hmm. There's a link we'll 
put in the show notes here that, that I've got on the wiki here that we use internally. It's called What is a White House Photographer? It, it's written by one of the former White House photographers, and he, he gives a really great little rundown of kind of the history of the roles that different ones have played with different presidents, and it varies wildly. I mean, some of them were kind of out in the cold, and others were, were definitely warmly embraced by the president and became very personal friends of theirs, play golf with them to this day, and so on. And they're the ones that tend to capture the most intimate you know, photos of, of the White House family and, and events beyond what the public normally sees yeah. but it, it's a wonderful read so i definitely will make sure we get that in the show notes yeah i know i remember when i was when i was active duty shooting you know that was like one of those sort of jobs that you just sort of dreamed about every now and then and you would never never ever think that you would make it there you know to to be a photographer for the white house you know it's like if i could get that job i'd be set you know <laughs> <laughs> but there's like one of course or apparently, uh, the most requested photo from the Nixon Library is the one of him shaking hands with Elvis. Wow. Yes, clearly. Yeah. Wow. Um, also in the news today, uh, Breeze Systems offers uh, remote control for Nikon. So, so they already had it. It was already out for for other models of Nikon. Is that correct, or is this just brand new, brand new piece of software hardware? I, they've extended it now to the update with the D three, D seven hundred, D two hundred. It's PC so only. It, it, yeah. Yeah, PC only. Not that I'm bitter. <laughs> yeah. There's always emulation in it. Right? <sighs> so what to, do do does anybody here actually shoot tethered that you would need remote capture like this? We I have. Yeah. I mean, it's really handy if you're in a studio setting and you can have you know your laptop there and mm-hmm. you can just you know get a nice big display of exactly what you're shooting and it is pretty cool. And and I wish this was this is exactly the kind of stuff that I'm always harping about about. You know, why don't these camera manufacturers just open things up as as broadly as possible and let people start, you know, interfacing and controlling the camera? Well, it's yeah. especially uh, useful when they write it for Nikon because Nikon has been in the past very difficult. They don't really publish the SDK the way Canon does. Mm-hmm. And so it's harder to find uh, automation systems for, for Nikon because they have their own, you know, Nikon capture um, that is uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I I have a little a little tiny studio in my house that I you know have some lights and I it's just a space that I don't have to take my lights down. <laughs> right. And I call right. it my studio and my plan was to throw a little old, you know, MacBook in there, you know, an outdated one and use it as a tether machine and shoot people when I, you know, and sort of have a big display there to evaluate focus and all that. But the I don't know, the the, the way that I shoot is rapid fire and i don't know if the throughput through that usb cable is fast enough to keep up with the way i shoot or would i be adjusting my photography to match the limitations of the gear which i don't want to see happen you know yeah you know what we have used it for primarily when we've done uh tethered shooting is for hdrs so we have Mm -hmm. a lot of control over the camera uh we can set it set it to do many exposures at the same time you know set up a nine exposures at whatever uh stop delta that we want without having to deal with whatever the limitations of the camera this is more important on the canon on the smaller canons because from the d300 and up from the nikon what's nice about them is they'll do nine nine exposures on a bracket Mm -hmm. which is usually enough to get anything you'd want Uh, you're a little bit more limited until you get to the higher end canons before you start getting that kind of range yeah i think that's it i think the 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 takeaway piece from that is and i don't know you know maybe i'm wrong but shooting on a tripod is the key. If you're shooting on a tripod and you're tethered and you have a lockdown controlled situation and you're, you know, adjusting, okay, this hair is in the way or this, 
you know, yeah. I need yeah. more, I need more glycerin on the fruit, yeah, you know, shots, yeah, or, or adjusting your lighting or that kind of stuff. I, I agree. It's, it's very, it's more of a technical photography kind of thing. You know, I used yeah. it a lot when I was uh, shooting some, some photos for my book. I mean, just making technical points about how optics and imagery works and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, it's great for that. But yeah, if you're shooting portraits and you're moving around and trying to get, you know, a sort of an interaction with the subject, I don't, I don't think it's the right thing for that. It's also really useful if you're shooting, uh, you know, oftentimes you'll see tethered style uh, shooting when you're dealing with like passport photos and, right. And, right. Uh, and portrait photos at a, mm-hmm. at a location, yeah. you know, because that greatly speeds up the whole process. Prom pictures. Even, like all of that mm-hmm. stuff is a tethered uh, situation where everything's going to be the same but you need to be able to fire through it and process those images as fast as you can. Yeah, and I can see maybe a situation where you're doing a corporate portrait of a CEO, you know, where he's got 10 minutes, you know, he slotted you, you have an hour maybe to get your stuff set up, your gear, you get everything set up, dialed in, you do some test shots, you got your your your, your laptop there, and when he enters the scene, you can just fire off a bunch of them and make sure they're perfect before he leaves. Right, and so. and, and when we, like, if, if, or, you know, if you're doing a yearbook for either a company or for, I know it at, uh, you know, at, when we when I was at ILM, you know, they have this ILM yearbook, and we'd all get in the line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And there'd be this long photo, and it was, ta- but it's it was take you know, you use it for I- IDs, for yearbook, everything else. But but when you have that kind of, I got to pump a lot of people through. I've got data that I have to flow into that to match with what I'm taking photos of. I don't want to try to match this up later. You know, those are all things that that are uh, very useful. Yeah, assembly, uh, assembly line. Yeah. Here's a, here's a question for you, for you guys and or for the audience because I'm too lazy to Google it. But when I last uh, tried this out, none of the tools that I, I could find would let me sort of programmatically control the focus of the lens. Uh, you could do the standard stuff of exposure and, and shutter speed, but actually sort of having, you know, doing focus practicing and, like, and things like that, I, didn't, I couldn't find anything. So I'd be curious to know what the current state of the art is for that. Is there something available for a Canon that would let me... Let me do that, for instance, because that's you know, know. That's interesting. My way. EOS utility triggers the autofocus. Um, it triggers it, or does it let you actually rack yeah, the focus? Yeah, but I'm looking you for know, like, you can't rack it. No, I mean that that's a physical thing on the lens. The point and shoot cameras, where the focus is controlled, you know, by you know a uh, toggle, you know, a switch or something on the body of the camera. I think those can be controlled. By the yeah, US so utility in a lot of cases. I mean, you, know, you, you would think. It. You would think. I mean, yeah, it, it's controlled by the camera, but if it's an autofocus lens, it's connected. It seems like you'd be able to, you know, dial it, you know, and and have I don't know some sort of potentiometer or something in there that is is controlling the focus and so that you can see it remotely. You don't have to actually have your hand on the lens. Um, I, right, I, I'm reaching. I do product photography sometimes here, and I, and I do it tethered in mm-hmm. the studio here at the home a lot, and. Um, Actually, I have my monitor on a um, on a hydraulic arm for moving it around anyway, but, which is really convenient because I can swing it around toward the direction of where I'm shooting, and you know be able to watch it from across the room. Yeah. And I do know that if I move the subject matter around and I happen to go back to the computer to make the adjustments, you know, if I've gotten off focus or something, that I'll, I'll see the focus hunt or it'll it'll relock on the item when it's triggered from the uh, from the software. Yeah. So I can't change the zoom. Obviously, that's a physical. You know, manifestation of the lens. But, one, uh, one of the other things, if you go to breezesys.com, is you'll see another thing that they're using it for is they actually uh, have a picture there where they're using, uh, I think, 120 Canon uh, 30Ds uh, hooked to five laptops to do basically bullet time. 
Right. You know, so so that's the kind of but that's the kind of stuff when you you need it to be camera you need it to be computer controlled right. you know right. to make it all work. Yeah, I'm not doing bullet time of models. Bullet time is awesome. <laughs> Has anybody <laughs> done bullet time? What what is bullet time for people who know what it is? Alan? Yeah, um, so for people that uh, I'll I'll give this one because I actually yep. uh, I mean classic bullet time definition these days comes from the the Matrix that sort of a uh, technique where you you have a camera set up sort of around the subject. They fire off simultaneously and it lets you get either stop, you know, completely stop the motion or extremely slow motion where you kind of can move around the subject as if they were frozen in midair. Uh, it's, it's a technique that's been around for a long time, a long time prior to the Matrix, but uh, they sort of made it pretty uh, pretty well known. And that's where the term bullet time came from. I actually was down on, I almost worked, I almost did the bullet time. It was almost the bullet time supervisor on the Matrix. The yeah. supervisor talked to, me, talked to me. And at the time, I went, you know, I went down to Australia and I looked at some of the concept art. And I, this is really cool. And, you know, at the time, I wasn't uh, in a position where I wanted to take that gig. And, you know, because also then you're like, what's this Matrix movie? Who's going to hear, you know, it's just some little, you know, <laughs> little science fiction movie. It's and going who nowhere. Knows, yeah. Who knows where this thing's going to go? Exactly. And, you it's know, just it's a series be a lot of, of tubes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, don't. Yeah. Oh, well. Oops. So you know, this is a, a good point to mention the the email address for for to reach us uh, twitpodcast dot com at gmail or twitpodcast at gmail dot com, and yes. uh, I'd be curious to know if any of the listeners out there are using tethered solutions. Yeah, let us know. Yeah, shoot us a note. Let us know if you're and how you're using it, and you know maybe we're wrong. Maybe they're twitpodcast. Twitpodcast at gmail dot com. Yeah, definitely. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, stick it in there. And uh, there's a new. Uh, I'm very excited that there's a new uh, firmware update for the LX3. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, because you have one. Because I, I have one. Because <laughs> if you did, you wouldn't care. <laughs> if you didn't, you wouldn't As care. I. But I care because I need it. <laughs> yeah. Although it doesn't look all that exciting. Still can't open the raw photos directly in Aperture. Yeah. Hmm. The, the you know the workaround, up. though. I, I do you. know the workaround. I don't want to work around. I just want to open the up. You want it to work. No, I just want it to work. work. I don't want, I don't want to go around anything. <laughs> I just want to go through. I want to go through the tunnel. I don't want to go around the mountain. Hey, you know who to talk to. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, hopefully uh, hopefully we'll see that that uh, that soon. Cool. Any other news? Um, yeah, Photoshop ad busting in Berlin. Uh, so Berlin is seeing a rash of stickers made to appear as Photoshop interface panels being pasted on ads around town. I've, I just looked at this note in here. Aaron, did you put this in here? What is this about? Yeah, I stuck that in there. I picked it up on uh, from my RSS feeds last night and thought it was pretty entertaining. Uh, apparently ad busting is... Um you know, making spoofs or parodies out of corporate ads by, by pasting things on top of the ads. Let's say, you know, ads on the wall on a subway or something. But the thing that's getting popular in Berlin at the moment is is uh, dropping stickers that look like all of the interface panels from Photoshop on top of them. So so this ad with a with a model in it who you know has been airbrushed to death to begin with now suddenly has, you know, your your tool palette and you know and other things pasted on top of it, kind of making the point that, you know, this isn't reality. And the point. <laughs> as if you know, as you know it's not reality so. um, it's, it's good it's it's, it's pixel uh, punishing i guess as you call it yeah no pixel abuse yeah. i it's think really, it is good I, I mean you know for us obviously it's we all are aware that yeah most of these all of these imagery that you see is is tweaked in some fashion but i think there's a lot of people that don't really realize to what extent it is at least yeah yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I keep having these ongoing conversations with photographers, usually on photo walks, about the 
you know, the, I don't know, morality of adjusting images, either beforehand, during, or after you shoot them. You know, beforehand meaning, oh, this flower is, you know, two inches to the left and I scoot it over to take a shot of it. You know, in post, oh, this flower was yellow and I want it to be more saturated, so I'm going to crank that up. You know, so what what's right and what's wrong? You know, so that that conversation is like, it's going to be going on forever and ever. And my, my standpoint on it is, you know, being... Uh, you know, the the kind of photographer I am, I think the world is my studio and the things in the world are my models. And I wouldn't expect a model to come into the studio without makeup on. (laughs) (laughs) So I adjust as necessary to get the picture I want, unless it's photojournalism, you know, as, you know, channeling Steve Simon. Yeah. So I don't know. I think photojournalism is the only one that I get, I think is is a sensitive subject uh, of, and even that, I mean, the thing to always keep in mind is that, uh, and I see this a lot when I'm in Africa, as you see photojournalism of places, you know, like I see news happening mm-hmm. where I'm, where I am. And the thing that I notice is how much of a difference it makes. I mean, sure, they're not changing the photo, but they've pointed the can- they've gotten in a high position pointed down to make 10 people look like 100. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks like there's a huge crowd out there, but there's only 10 or 20 people. Yeah. But you have the impression, they've left the impression, they haven't changed the photo, yeah. they haven't added people, but they've left the impression that, that this is a huge crowd around this and it's upset. I mean, anybody could find 20 people to get upset about something. You know, you know mm-hmm. and so the, the, the issue is, is that oftentimes just the, what you take photos of and the positioning of the camera is as manipulative as doing any editing to the to the image. Now that said, I don't think I think that that is the place where that's where it should be limited for photojournalism. For me, yeah, as soon as I start pulling that trigger, I'm not only am I wondering if I'm going to use <laughs> if I'm going to be t- touching it up, uh, I invariably I will. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, you know, for me, you know, and I don't know. I I think that the photographers at least the ones that I talk to are are just polarized on this. Some of them that I know say, hey, don't, you should crop in camera. Don't even crop outside of the camera. You know, you should do everything in camera, get it right. If you don't get it right in the camera, then you're somehow incompetent, you know. And I come in from the, the opposite angle of, you know, I'm, I'm capturing the stuff that I want to capture. And what I do to it afterwards is, is me continuing to try to articulate what I wanted <laughs> from the shot, you know. Whether I do it by zooming, you know, my lens or changing my focus or aperture or by cropping in Lightroom or Photoshop or, you know, changing the saturation. It's all fair game to me, you know. And I think I may be part of the minority there. I don't know. Cause... How about you guys? I, I kind of feel like it's fair game too. I mean, generally for me, the limit on what I'm willing to do is is how much time do I have more than anything, <laughs> you know. It's, uh, I'm not going to go back and do some extraordinarily in- intensive changes to the scene. I mean, I, you know, I also won't do anything that really changes the scene that much, but I have no problem with, you know, boosting the color or, you know, even more often I'd say, you know, removing something that doesn't, uh, you know, if there's a little branch that intrudes into the scene and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get it out of the shot. I mean, you know, if I was on on location and that branch had been within re- reach, I, you know, very likely may have just reached up and, broke it off to get the shot the way I wanted it to. So I don't have a problem right. with that kind of thing. Yeah. But, you know, with the grain of salt, of course, what's what's the title of your book, Ron? <laughs> well, yes. This, this is the world I live in of uh, <laughs> manipulating empathy. Absolutely. <laughs> what about you, Aaron? What do you, what, how do you fall on that? Are you a, a purist? Don't touch the uh, image or no, do whatever no, you want? I mean, it's always a point of satisfaction if it comes out of the camera with as little modification as necessary. But... I certainly, if I if I take a shot and there's a way I can improve it, 
Um, I certainly will. I mean, virtually everything. I, I shoot raw, so virtually everything is going to get a certain amount of tweaking anyway, with yeah. color and saturation and and uh, levels of different kinds and so on. And crops, absolutely. There's a lot of pictures you can change tremendously just by how you crop it. Yeah. So uh, you know, but uh, but I will take things out if needed. Um, combine a couple shots if needed. It just depends on where that image is headed. That's exactly what its right. Purpose is. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because when I when I go on on these photo walks, you know, these are usually going to show up on Flickr or you know, if I have a shot that I'm particularly fond of, I'll print it and hang it on the mm-hmm. wall in the house. You know, and if it's going on the wall in the house, I'll make it look exactly how I want it to look. You know, I'll change the color to match my couch if I want to. <laughs> the know? funny thing for me is I also do a lot of political and event photography, and that actually goes both directions. Because there's times when I'm covering stuff for political photography where my mindset is journalistic, and I feel like I need to leave it alone as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And in, the, in which case, I'll just take the best shots. But also, in the political realm, there are certainly cases where a shot update and I'm preparing for a politician to use for their materials, in which case it's going to get the kind of treatment that it would, you know, for, for a model or somebody else. You're going to want to make the shot look as good as possible. So, you know, that's, that's one area of photography I do that actually kind of has a foot in both worlds, depending on the destination for the picture. Yeah, the rules, the rules are dependent on the requirements of the customer, whether that customer be you, you know, you're shooting for yourself, which in case there are no rules. Or mm-hmm. if you're shooting for a newspaper or some other journalistic entity, then there are several rules and guidelines in place. Or if you're shooting a model, then there are certain things that you need to do. You know, so I think the the answer to that is it depends. And if I think if you if you pigeonhole yourself and lock yourself into a certain way of shooting because you think it's morally unacceptable to crop or do something else, I think you're limiting the the the, the your your power and the the tools that you have available to you to you know execute your vision in the best way you know how. Let, let me pose one quick question now to drag this out to to you all too in in relation to this and this particularly applies when you're taking pictures of family and friends and people you're close with. I always have a tendency to like it when I take a picture of someone that I feel shows that person the way I know them and that same person is probably going to flip out and not like you know there's lines in my face or there you know there's some aspect of it that they don't appreciate you know which. Do you all often get into a situation like that where your perception, I mean, what is a great shot of someone that you know or love is what shows them the way you see them, and they see themselves very differently? Well, they get upset when I put horns on them, I think. (laughs) 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 No, you're right, you know, but I, the way that I shoot, if I'm going to show somebody an image, um, it's just the way that I am. I'm going to try to make it and make it. I'm going to try to please them if they're going to see it, right? So if it's going in my my little personal memory you know, archive or whatever, no one's ever going to see it. I mean, I do anything to it. But if someone's going to see it, you know, if I'm shooting a picture of my girlfriend or whomever, you know, and and she's going to see it and her family's going to see it, I'm going to make her look the best she can. So, <laughs> so Hence, I will pay later. One of, the things that, one of the things that the DP uh, at, um, the DP on the film I was shooting, uh, that I was working on in Japan, mm-hmm. found out is that if you make a funny face with me, it is guaranteed to be liquefied. <laughs> You know, like, and so he would give me these big, like, bug-eyed look, this big crazy look on his face, and then I just go in, and the key with the key with liquef- liquefaction in Photoshop is subtlety. Yeah, you make someone's eyes just a little bigger than they should be, so that that the at first glance they just look crazy. You know, but, but, you, do, yeah. but you you don't go, oh, he just photoshopped that. Yeah. With anything, when you're doing these touch-ups, subtlety is the key, and um, and then of course what you do is you send them to the crew yeah and then well they, it's like plastic surgery right so <laughs> yeah, in reverse yeah. for me in reverse right yeah, yeah so. plastic plastic surgeon with uh you know, liquify in his business name is probably not a good idea <laughs> <laughs> he can make you look like anything yeah 
Uh, you know, I think we beat that to death. Let's uh, yes. jump over to the uh, the picks of the week. Alex, what are you? Uh, what are your picks? My pick of the week uh, is something that I, you know I've I've kind of I keep on buying them and then I lose them. Uh, cameras, uh, <laughs> iPods. <laughs> this, is, this is a really that's a really sore subject. I really wish you hadn't brought it up. Uh, Lens, uh, the uh, lens brushes. Have you had? A, <clears throat> have you used a lens brush mm-hmm. or, or lens pen? I'm sorry. Oh, lens. So, yeah. so I carry one of these in my in my bag all the time, and now I buy a couple of them because I tend to set them down in the wrong place. Uh, these are they have a brush on one end, and then they have like a little uh, really fine soft felt end on the other. Um, and and what you can do is basically it is awesome when you're you know in the field. And you need to clean the front of your lens, and you're just always. I'm always worried. I don't want to use. I don't like using lens cloths that often because they've been sitting in my pocket. Mm-hmm. They've been, um, and so, so so a lot of times I'll blow them. You know, blow them off a little bit. You know, with uh, with one of those little rockets or the little, you know, the uh, I, I you know I have a little, yeah, the air, little blower. air blowers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'll blow off the front a little bit, um, and if I don't when I, when I don't get that, these lens pens. What's great is it's kind of like three levels. They don't have the blower, but you can you can kind of um, blow off the front of the lens, and then you can use a brush and kind of carefully get off anything that's major, any major grit. And then the felt end of this, the really fine felt end, just you just r- literally, I just rub it on the on the lens. Never see a scratch. Never. Now, you want to do the first steps because you, what you don't want to do is grab onto a, a piece of sand or mm-hmm. dust and push it along. Yeah. But, you know, and it's not like I just jam it on there and, and, but, and start squeegeeing it. But I, but I definitely can give it a fair bit of pressure to get, you know, uh, fingerprints, oil, uh, splatters. Water, water spots is the one that I, I yeah. always – because, you know, they're very hard to get off. A little drop of rain or something like that has a little bit of a – mineral component to it and it it sticks on there and it's not something you can brush or blow off and, and the, yeah these are great for that because you can do a little bit of localized scrubbing and get a get a water spot off of the lens without any worries and once i started using one i was kind of done with the cloth what's it called it's what? called a lens pen, a lens. The, lens, here's pen. The deal. lens pen is one brand of it mm-hmm. it's you know there's um, essentially it has a brush on one end that, that has usually a little uh um, it's got a little button that pushes the brush out, so the brush can be, you know, kind of pulled in, and, and it kind of disappears into the pen. Uh, and then it has a top on the other end that you pop off the top, and it's got this little felt thing. So the, it's it's also uh, kind of protected, so it's not like it just sticks out. So it it, it stays pretty clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and I lose them often enough that they stay clean all the time because uh, I never actually. Well, they're cheap. They're like ten bucks. Yeah, they're ten bucks. Know, I don't. You it's get not them something on worry about. Amazon or something like that, and you know, I just get a few of them in there and just you know have them around. Invaluable. I mean, once yeah. I started using a lens a lens pen, I stopped using anything else on my lenses. Oh, wow. You know, it's it's a it's a great little tool. How did tool. I not know about this? I need to go. Well, that's why I'm that's why I'm that's why it's, it's I a need pick. to start listening to Twip. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's why some okay stuff. That's my uh that's my that's my pick of the week. That's cool. What about you uh Ron? What do you got? My pick is in some ways it's almost a technology because there's the um, the back-end technology, and then there's some products that come out of it. But I'm going to kind of shout out first to just something called AutoStitch. You can just Google it. I think even AutoStitch.net or something like that takes you there. It's a you know panoramic stitching tool. Uh, the the Mac version of it, the Mac incarnation in, in a product, is something called Calico. And the thing I like about it, I mean, there's a lot of different tools out there for stitching, but these are the guys that have really figured out how to make it just brain-dead simple. It's... You take a bunch of a bunch of photos, you know, of, of the scene or whatever you're doing, and you just drop them all on this app, and it does everything else in terms of figuring out how they line up. You know, a lot of these other 
panoramic tools sort of require you to at least somewhat place them or even, you know, a lot, a lot of them require you to kind of identify matching features. Mm-hmm. And, and Calico is nice because I just literally drag and drop them all over on top of it and it just goes and chugs for a few seconds and says, oh, here it is. Here's your panorama. Is it, are it, the results better than what you'd get out of, you know, CS3, 4? Um, I haven't done like a, a one-to-one comparison. I think you, one of the things that I think it does, and I haven't tried C, I haven't done as much. I did a lot of testing in CS3, mm-hmm. and I haven't done as much testing with CS4 yet. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I had trouble with in CS3 was two rows. Yes. Does CS4 now let you do arbitrary number of rows and columns? It does. Yeah, you, you know. can do you can do grids now. Okay, yeah, and yeah, that's I, that I part I have I, in CS3. It was not a happy experience. Yeah. So I have not tested uh, tested a direct comparison. I'll, I'll have to go do that. Uh, this will. At least Calico on the Mac will go ahead and output uh, a Photoshop file with you know everything kept in different layers, so you can still bring it into Photoshop and do what you want with it. But it's just you know it's just super. It's fast. It's easy. It takes in you know high resolution TIFF files if you want to preserve bit depth. And uh, there's a little post cropping you can do. The one thing it doesn't do is remove any of the effectively the lens distortion that you get by doing a really wide uh, panoramic stitch. You know you, you know you're effectively emulating a very like a fisheye kind of a thing so you'll get an image out of it that's got the fisheye look to it if you've done something really wide uh and there's not anything inside of calico at least for doing that hmm. well, that's cheap it's like 15 bucks or something i have to try it out i'm still still having the back of my mind this little project that's uh, a multi-row panorama in hdr so I want to try yes. that, like do something of the Golden Gate Bridge where it's a panoramic stitch of the entire scene, but and then do that three times, you know, one stop under, one stop over, and then merge them all together and get this dynamic sort of panoramic yeah. shot. I have, you know, I have that, the, uh, the, the pano hardware that I, I, I bought, and I still, it's, I bought it while I was in Japan, and I, and I literally... The Kaiden? The Kaiden? No, 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 this is the auto, um, hold on, hold on. Uh, Alex is leaving the room to run and get this, <laughs> to get something that he bought in Japan. So I don't know. I wanted to I wanted to try that and uh, just sort of because I haven't done much HDR and I wanted to sort of use this as an experiment to first get my feet wet really deeply in HDR and then also push panoramic stitching. You know, to you know as far as it can go, or not as far as it can go, but to a limit. I'll you know, tell you there's two approaches you can take to it too. I've done a lot of. Uh, both mosaic panos and 360 degree VRs that are that are HDR as well. So after they, okay. they can be challenging. <laughs> yeah. So so the thing that I that I have that I haven't haven't tested yet um, is the uh, Gigapan system. Hmm. So I, I bought this Gigapan system, and you can throw. This is designed for like the smaller smaller stuff. So I can put in a. Uh, my LX3, for instance. Just for the record, Alex has brought in a device that looks like a flux capacitor and <laughs> placed it on the table here. We, you know, this is, this is something we, we talked with uh, Greg Downing about, and um, and uh, what you can do. This is what they shot the Yosemite stuff that he had, that he that he did. Mm-hmm. And so you you put this on the on the top of a tripod, and then you can set the uh, you can set how many increments that you want, both up and you know up and down and to the side. And it'll, you know, this is how you you can build. Literally, you just push the button and it starts firing the camera, mm-hmm. and it just yeah, does the kinda, minor it, increments and it does it automatically. And uh, so you can build literally a gigapixel image without, you know, and then sti- and then you can stitch it all to get, you know, stitch it all back together using whatever tools you want to use. Um, but it's uh, it's it's still in beta. It's only a couple hundred bucks. That was the yeah. The it's pretty point. cool because you're really you just sort of you, know, you set you say I want to do 
a five by five panorama and here's the upper left corner of where I want it pointed to and here's the bottom right corner and it just goes off and you know little motors resetting it and doing that and there's actually a little arm that's pushing the shutter button to get what you need yeah so it's a little robot yeah it's a little robot and and so you just sit there and watch it do its thing and then you bring it back in and I believe they have now software that kind of works with it to stitch it all back together so I, I actually embarrassingly have had it for a month I ordered it like uh, in early December, and it's been sitting in a box. And I got here, and every day I look at it and go, "Oh, I'm going to take that out." And I'm taking that it. with me. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to <laughs> that. Take it out. For my a my camera and the Golden Gate Bridge have an appointment. So, <laughs> if you want to borrow it, I need to try that you out. You can try it out. So it's uh, and it'll work with any. You know, this one's designed for any small camera. I think they're going to build one for an SLR, but this is really built for like. The G9 or the or the LX3 or whatever else you want to use there. So cool. it's something that I'm, I'm excited about using. And, and and I believe it does whole pan. You know, it'll you could theoretically do an entire uh, panel with it. But um, I haven't uh, had a chance to. Uh, so Ren, Ren, you were saying you could you, you just give it a grid so you could say I want this this to be four across and two down and it'll just do it and give you yeah. precisely aligned images. Well, you don't even say span. four across. You can say I just went from this point to this point and it'll figure out how and I want to do it in thirty six images and then it just figures out. The, yeah, you just I think you set you set the percentage overlap. I think if I remember right, like you know how, yeah. how much overlap do you want on each one of the images? And then they and then they also they uh, and they're working on the software or it's in here now and I have to check. But you can also set it to, do, I believe, to HDR, or it's coming. So you'll be able to say, and I want in every fi- every one that you fire, fire off five exposures or three exposures or whatever. That's what I need. This is what you need. That's the device I need. I was going to do that manually. Now I don't have to. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, I, 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 I thought about doing it manually, and then I remember that I have other things in my life. Well, you know, my what I was going to do is get a piece of grid paper and <laughs> write out this matrix of shots that I need to accomplish yeah. and then try to name them correctly to stitch them back later. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. You really need that or a pano head to do it right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to try to do it handheld. Total point issue. Yeah. Handheld. You're sick. You're <laughs> do it handheld. Yeah, handheld. Well, you want to show that you can actually do this stuff, you know, with consumer gear. Well, you can. What's amazing is, is with at least with the Photoshop stuff, and I'm sure I'm going to test this cal- the calico, is that uh, with Photoshop, you really – I do – Lots and lots of panos yeah. in Photoshop, just handheld. Yeah, I mean, just just boom, boom, it just boom. Works. It's, it's, yeah. As long as you don't have you know a lot of sort of foreground background disparity, as long as you're exactly. shooting something that's really all yeah. off in the distance, and mm-hmm. you know the the amount of movement you make relative to all the objects in the scene is small, yeah. then yeah, it's fine. If and you're then, gonna do, if you're gonna try to do like indoor panel stitching or something like that then you really have to have it well calibrated You'd be surprised. i mean i'd be surprised I'm, i've been surprised at how forgiving photoshop can be when it comes to doing you know stuff that's close you know closer not right up next to you but but I, I always i used to think it had to be really far away but it actually does pretty well on the stuff that's closer the other thing is you have to remember you have to think about a nodal point so what you don't want to do is turn at your waist you know what you're tempted to do on a pano is especially when things are are close is is, is click and then pan your whole body mm-hmm uh, but the issue is, is that now you're moving way a, a lot away from the nodal point. So the rotational center is your body, not the camera. Right. So one of the things when I shoot a pano is I'll I'll take a picture, and then I I turn on the camera's center, not on my center. I don't move my hands. So I try to keep my hands as close to the center, close to where they're sitting, as possible, and I just turn the camera in its place. Now it's not perfect, mm-hmm. but it is infinitely better than uh, than moving your body. What's the, what's the what's the technical definition of nodal point? It's the the point where basically you know when the light comes into a camera it sort of flips it converges and then 
rediverges when it hits the image plane. Mm-hmm. You've seen all these little diagrams, right, where there's a little hourglass shape. Yeah. And the nodal, the nodal point is that, that point where, you know, it's effectively where, uh, as long as you're moving around that, you will see no parallax shift in the uh, in the image. You know? So theoretically, that, that nodal point represents the center of the lens, right? Or sort of like yeah, from, I mean, the, from the front it, to where the it's back. physically from located, kind of from the focal point. Yeah, yeah. yeah, where it's actually located is dependent on on the lens and stuff. But it's usually, I mean, if you don't know for sure and you just want to have sort of a, a general point to be rotating around, kind of visualize something that's probably about at the back of your lens somewhere and kind of rotate around that. It's usually a pretty good guess. Okay. It's about on the gold ring on an eight millimeter sigma. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yep. <laughs> All right. It's rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. Until that gold ring peels off. <laughs> yeah. Well, on the EX lens, it better not. So, Aaron, what's uh, what's your pick of the week? Uh, my pick of the week is actually something I mentioned earlier when we were talking about inauguration. It's it's a company or a service in this case. It's uh, LensRentals.com. I absolutely love these guys. I've used them several times and have already mapped out a plan of things I want to do in the future. But uh, it's um, a, a family-owned uh, company in Tennessee, uh, Cordova, Tennessee, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, which is especially nice for me because it's one state away and it makes shipping even faster. But uh, they stock just about every lens you can imagine uh, for Canons, Nikons, uh, and a number of others. Um, top-notch group with a huge inventory of all the most popular lenses, especially. Their prices are fantastic. Um, and you can basically what did, what rent you, for a week or a month or you know some amount of time that you need, and uh, they'll, they'll ship you the lens. Uh, you can get it with insurance. You prepay the return on it, and uh, you set your window of time. And within a couple of days, um, your lens arrives in fantastic shape, and uh, just turn it around with a FedEx prepaid and send it right back to them. Wow. What and, did you uh, What did you pay for that uh, that four hundred, that two hundred, four hundred that you're um, renting? I think in this particular case, I rented the. Um, the 100 to 400 for a week with insurance and prepaid return, and I think it was about $72, well, if I'm not mistaken. Oh. Actually, the shipping, return shipping may add some to that, but I think it was $72 was the insured one-week cost for that lens, and then I guess the return shipping on top of that. And that was probably the case for both of these lenses. So and it was a hundred and some dollar, okay. under $200 purchase all the way around. Uh, for the week, and in my experience with them too, and of course, like I said, I'm in Virginia and they're in Tennessee, so the shipping's pretty fast, one state away. Um, they always tend to arrive a day or two ahead of the requested date. Um, yet they only require it to be, you know, in the shipper's hands by the return date that you've specified. And if you need to extend that, you just contact them and make arrangements for it. Um, but the equipment has always been in fantastic condition. I've never had a uh, a worry at all about any of that. The guys that own the company are all um, avid photographers. They use all the gear themselves. They know it very well. You just pick up the phone and call them if you have questions. They've probably shot with all of the stuff themselves. They rent bodies as well, as well by the way. Hmm. So if you want to try out a D3X, you can rent one from them. No, um, no 5Ds for you for the inauguration? Uh, <laughs> I just didn't get my ducks in a row and, you know, in time to to do that actually but uh but they do have them they have 5d mark ii's in stock actually last i checked that's really uh, interesting rental right now. i've never i've never so. we were we were talking offline about this uh aaron you know a couple of days ago i've never uh rented a lens before i've rented lighting gear but i've never never well, never you, rented it, any camera gear there's so many reasons why um you would do it and and i would tell our listeners um first off if you're thinking of buying a certain type of lens or body rent it and play with it 
for a yeah. while, get a feel for it. I mean, you could save yourself a tremendous amount of money by doing that. For me, I run it because there's times when I'm shooting events where there's lenses that will fit my event needs that I just can't justify owning, especially mm-hmm. if they're multi-thousand dollar lenses in cases. If, if it's going to collect dust all the rest of the time, I'd much rather just rent it for the period that I need it and build that cost into what I'm billing for the work. So it's kind of like, um, like dating your lens before you marry exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> so it is a wonderful way to experiment with the lenses, to use stuff that you just really can't afford or justify owning. Uh, just a, a whole lot of reasons to do it, certainly. So, um, and uh, their website is actually quite entertaining too. It's beautifully laid out. Uh, it's it's very easy to log in, set things up, place your order, and be done with it. Um, but they've got some really humorous commentary spread throughout the site on certain lenses, uh, particularly their tilt shift lenses. Everybody should go look at the Canon tilt shift lenses and read read their remarks on them. <laughs> So, uh, when I think of renting anything, all I think about is when I was in high school, we used to rent skis. We had I had really nice skis, mm-hmm. but we rented them anyway because <laughs> because when we brought them, them back. <laughs> when we brought them back, they weren't usable. Great, I mean, the Lynn like, Rentals guys are like, "Oh, great, yeah, that's thanks not a lot, Alex." I think it's like every time someone says, "Why would you rent them?" I'm like, "Cause I'm going into right. a war zone, and I thought that maybe if I your name your, if your name is Alex Lindsay, you're now on the do not rent <laughs> yeah, list. Exactly. That, that, that ended any chance that I was ever going to get a some lens. underwater photography, and my housing is leaky. <laughs> <laughs> To their credit, too, I'll also mention that they have an iPhone version of their site, so you can. Uh, it's all iPhone optimized. So if you're out and about and you need to set up a rental right then and there when you're thinking about it, it's a nice little iPhone version of the site as well. Well, they sound like a lifesaver for, like, especially like you, Aaron, for example. You know, you probably don't want to go out and spend all that cash to. Uh buy no, all these I, lenses but you still have access to them that's kind of cool. i have no need for this 100 to 400 in my normal life i mean that's just something that fits my needs probably at inauguration and the turnaround time is great because it was last thursday that i got a call that uh, that i would be going to inauguration so you know an hour after the call i was on lens rentals making the arrangement and yesterday you know uh, fedex dropped them off on the porch Cool. So, uh, and kind of cool thing to their credit, I mean, they track this expensive gear that they ship very nicely. So, FedEx came and knocked on the door. You have to sign for it, obviously. They're not going to leave these on your porch. Um, you sign for it, and within like 20 minutes, I had an email um, from Lens Rentals that had, you know, tracked the order automatically that sent me a copy of it telling me that the lenses had been accepted and even had the graphic capture of my signature from the FedEx signing. Right there. Make sure that you know that, yes, you have the lens. Exactly. You know, we, and we know scroll. that you have the lens. Uh-huh. They have a little That's picture right. of Godfather on there, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we know you have our lens. Did you, did, you, did you give us a pick? I didn't, uh, but I have two. I know you, you think I don't have a uh, yeah, see, He's, he's looking at me because he thinks I didn't have one. I thought I'd catch him off guard. Get catch me. Um, I've got two, actually. I think we may have mentioned one before, but I'm mentioning it again. Uh, Photo Jojo is a uh, kind of a consumer photography newsletter. Have you heard of them? Nope. Photo Jojo. P-H-O-T-O-J-O-J-O. PhotoJojo.com. And basically, they've got... It's really interesting what uh, what they're doing over there is, you know, they, they scour the web and wherever else, and they find these really cool tips and tricks that you can do to sort of uh, either shoot better or do things with the photos that you do shoot, like make things. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting sort of newsletter and that's the format that they deliver it in so it's not like it's a blog that you have to go visit all the time they shoot you a mail that says hey have you thought about trying this thing with your photography and you know every now and then i get the email and it's like oh i hadn't thought about doing that (laughs) you know and it's it's uh you know it's some of the more useful mail that i get and they're at photojojo.com it's a it's pretty interesting you just pop over there and uh, pop in your email address and you're on they did this cool thing where that they call the um time capsule i think it is 
And basically what they do is they you give them your Flickr account. And if you're uploading to Flickr all the time, you know, you know, if you've been uploading for years or whatever, every year they'll send you an email with the photo or a series of photos that you shot a year ago. And it's kind of an eye opener. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, I did shoot that. Oh, I remember that person, you know. So it's kind of kind of a uh, a blast from the past every year, and it just sort of shows up. And then the second one is also very consumer based and also Flickr related. Um, and I actually just used this yesterday. Yesterday, just yesterday. Uh, it's called Picnic. Have you heard of Picnic? Alex? I don't think so. Picnic. So if you're on Flickr and you click on one of the one of your images, um, at the top there's a little button that says Edit. And if you click that edit button, it launches this uh, application that was, you know, built in Flash that lets you do lots of manipulation to that image, like add vignettes, boost the contrast, boost the saturation, all that good stuff right in place. And it'll either save out the new version of your edited photo directly to your Flickr stream, or you can replace the existing image and delete the, you know, delete the original. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And I use it because, you know. Can you, you do it to other people's photos? Um, I don't think you can. I think you can only do it. <laughs> Start putting big smiley faces. Why, why always the, 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 you know, the negative stuff, Alex? <laughs> can, I, can I manipulate someone else's? <laughs> I put some mustaches on random people in Flickr. But it's, it's cool because, you know, a lot of times you don't want to jump into Lightroom or Aperture or Photoshop or whatever yeah. to, to edit these things. And it's just a happy snap. But it'd be great if you just, you know, cropped it a little and boosted the contrast and put a little vignette or something on there. It lets you do that. You're in, you're out, you're done, and it's online. So that's my, uh, that's my pick of the week. That's awesome. I like that. So yeah, use great. that. You know, there's a there's a, a bunch of tools like that. Just talking about Picnic, like there's another one. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, I think it's Aviary. Have you heard of Aviary? I've not. Uh, Ron or Ron or Aaron, have you heard of Aviary? I think it's Aviary. No, I haven't. Yeah, I it's a, yeah. Google it, but it's a it's an online application that is it's trying to be a community based Photoshop tool that's executed online. So you sign up for it, and you've got all these tools. It looks very much like Photoshop, but you go in there, and you can do lots of things like manipulate images and cloning and all that stuff. You know, very Photoshop. You would think that you could only do them in Photoshop. Now you can do them online. So all that stuff is in there. But, you know, it's not targeted at the Photoshop user base. It's targeted at folks that want to kind of the picnic audience that want to just do sort of quick things. But it's really interesting. They have some tutorials up there to sort of check out and play around with. They have another online one. It's called Photoshop. Photoshop. <laughs> Photoshop Express. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It'd be that, really cool to see Photoshop Express in Flickr. Photoshop Express is different, though, than these. So Photoshop Express is more like a uh, – it's almost like an iPhoto, like mm-hmm. an iPhoto executed online. But it's, it's really powerful as well and lets you share. The cool thing about Photoshop Express is that you can tie it into your Flickr account or your Facebook account, and it'll pull in those images you can edit them inside them the application, save them, and it pushes them back out to that service. So you don't have to like, okay, I need to bring this in and export it and import it again at Facebook. You edit it inside Photoshop Express, and boom, it's edited. Yeah. You know, And whoever, the next person to load that photo will see the changes that you made. So, yeah, very powerful. But all very different. Yes. And they're all very free, and you just play around with it. Although I don't know if Aviary is still free. I think they may have gone out of beta and uh, decided they needed to justify their existence and charge. There's always that. Yeah. There's Eventually always you that. realize that, uh, yeah, you're going to make money. Yeah. So we looks like we have a listener side of the week from a First Lieutenant Tyler Ginter. This is actually really cool. So 
Um, he uh, recommends this, this site called, what is it, DVIS Hub. Or, DV- or DV- DVI, DVIDS Hub. DVIDS Hub.net. It's a site that contains over 130,000 royalty free, high resolution military related photos from all over the world that you can use if you register. Which is, have you looked at the site, Alex? I haven't had It looks to- awesome. So, in, and apparently, uh, lots of reputable places like uh, AP, Reuters, New York Times, CNN, those guys are using it. So, how come I didn't know? About it? <laughs> exactly. You used to shoot for them. Me you used of to all shoot? people. Yeah. No, but this guy, he was in the army, or he is in the army. He's in okay. the 55th Combat Camera Company, aka Eyes of the Army. And I was in the 1369th Audiovisual Squadron in the Air right. Force. So, different. Uh, same thing, only different. So, yeah, he's a combat camera. Uh, so he's my brother. Hi. Yeah, no, the, so, it looks really nice. So I'm sorry. So are they, these are, it's basically, since it's all government-owned, it's all free free to use kind of stuff? Yeah, that's what it looks like, yeah. I it's mean, actually our it's, government I like to think of it as I like to think of it as prepaid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <I guess laughs> through, through our taxes. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Hey, believe point. me, you paid a lot. Yeah, maybe you yeah. should start charging for these, considering the the bailout. You know, <laughs> <laughs> just put a little, you know, dollar. Cool. I mean, I poked I poked around it on a little bit, and uh, it is. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a fire hose of imagery, and there's there's a lot yeah. of stuff up there. I, I find that you really want to use the search tools because you know, for instance, we're right now. Uh, I need I need a helicopter for a uh, for a, for a little uh, short film that we're doing for mm-hmm. a friend. And, of course, you know, you do a search up there for helicopter, and then you get all of these images of helicopter, And it's real helicopters. It's not like, oh, we took them in a movie or whatever. This is, yeah. you know, UH-60s landing on on a deck. And the resolution is good? Uh, yes, yes. No, they're, they're high-res. Um, I don't, you know, I think that high-res means different things in different places, but uh, uh, they, they seem to be, you know, fairly high-resolution, definitely large enough for what we're using them for, reference and stuff. And you could probably use them if you were doing some kind of news gathering or whatever i can see how they they make them work they're they are if you're not registered i believe that's the issue uh you just have to log in so if you log in uh you know you you register and log in you can then uh then you can get them without the watermark there's that's a watermark really cool yeah i'm glad they did that yes very cool that's so the week. for yeah that was the uh that was the, the site pick of the week from the listener so the photo assignment and the current poll. So uh, we're in week two of the current challenge, which was shallow depth of field. And there are some really good shots in there. Yeah. I'm a big fan of shallow depth of field. If I could shoot everything at F1.2, I would. <laughs> I, I pretty much do. You know, I, I, yeah. I, 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 sometimes, I sometimes venture over 2.8, but very rarely. Yeah. yeah. It's just amazing, you know, especially when you get up close yeah. and, you know, you're shooting with this really shallow depth of field. I'm a big fan of, like, really abstract things or... Like on these photo walks, I typically just go out and shoot close things, bugs, right. plants, flowers, you know, right. urban decay. And right. it's just, you know, getting close on things and taking photos of things that people normally overlook is really cool. And, uh, yeah, what was the uh, – so that's the, uh, that's the current challenge. So how many – Aaron, do you know how many people we have in there like, that are participating in this poll so far? Ooh, um, <clears throat> on the poll or on the or contest? In, I'm sorry, in the this contest. Yeah, the shallow depth of field contest. contest. I would have to check because there's new ones coming in all the time. Yeah, so. there's a ton. So I would encourage people to sort of jump in there and definitely check that out. Throw, check it out. Yeah, I think that we're going to get more inspiration. response for the technical, this kind of technical approach. I think we're going to do a couple more of these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I like the, the technical more than – and I, I tend to participate more in things that are technical like that rather than more ethereal like right. the color red. 
Right. You know, so because I'm like, I don't know what to take a picture of. But right. if you say, you know, anything you want inside of this, yeah, this technical these parameters. Yeah. And then the, the last poll that we did um, was how many pixels is enough? How many is how many is too much? How many is enough? And it looks like we have a winner. It looks like uh, between 10 and 12, almost over half of the listeners said oh, between 10 and 12 pixels is enough pixels. Uh, it looks like 24 plus is between 10 and 12 megapixels. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 10 and 12 pixels. That's all you need. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's three by four pixels. Yeah. Yeah. Before 10 and 12, between 10 and 12 megapixels is enough. And coming in second there was 14 to 22. Uh, and then. And that's 75% that, of the market. Yeah, that's pretty much everything. Everything else was, was too close to tell. Oh, then, then megapixels, megapixels is all about the competition. 15% of the folks said it doesn't matter. It's all about, uh, you know, what you're shooting in the composition. So, I don't know. We, what do you fall, Alex, on that? You know, I, for me, uh, 10 to 12 is great. You know, I think that that's, that would be plenty for me. I have to admit I would still go to a 5 to 8 if I, if I got crazy sensitivity. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be quite. I mean, I'd be quite satisfied a lot of the time if I had a six megapixel camera that that shot. Cause I, I shot with a six megapixel camera for a long time. Yeah, and I'd be quite happy with that if I if I could shoot, you know, twelve thousand six hundred or twelve thousand eight hundred that was grainless yeah. at six megapixel. And I think the average consumer. I think this is what the camera companies are just starting to realize. The average consumer out there, if given a six megapixel camera that could shoot in near dark without any grain mm-hmm. would be done. I mean, that camera would go like crazy. I think they've already yeah. realized it. They're just, they're just trying to ring this megapixel thing for all it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> Let's I mean, just keep pushing There's it. big technical challenges if you're trying to do anything other than a full-frame sensor. Because you guys talked about this a little bit last week when I wasn't on the show. And so I was just I was kind of curious. You know, what, what if I took a D3 sensor, you know, sort of at the acknowledged high-end sensitivity leader, and just crop that down to the same size that I have in my LX3, you know, what kind of resolution would that get me? And how many pixels would I, be, would I be left with? And I was thinking it might be a few, you know, a reasonable sort of a scenario. But unfortunately, the, the sort of size ratio between the sensor in my little LX3 or a G9 or a G10 versus a full-frame D3 sensor is about 20 to 1. So you're, you're down to looking at less than a megapixel if you just cropped the D3 sensor down to the same size as in your LX3. So they but still I, have I a little ways. Pay, I still think people would pay a premium if they knew. If, if people started seeing pe- these crazy photos and they could mm-hmm. buy a, a kind of an, a, a relatively nice point and shoot for seven or $800 that had, uh, that had a larger sensor, maybe not the size of, a, uh, of the D700 but, but, or, 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 or uh, yeah, or the D3, but more of a uh, maybe half that size or a quarter that size, mm-hmm. and, were, and and they were able to get a six megapixel you know image out of it. I think that that a lot of people I think would be pretty. Yeah, well, you know, if you if you crop the the D3 sensor down to uh, Nikon's typical crop sensor ratio, which is like a one point five thing, that still gets you down to eight megapixels, and that's perfectly valid. So I could definitely see them doing that for their. Uh, right. You know, they're lower-end models that are the crop sensor models. They they have the technology right now to do D3 sensitivity with an 8-megapixel sensor. And I, yeah, I think that would be a huge seller. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, you got to look at what you can sell, too. So, you know, like I was saying before, it's uh, I think that camera would sell, but there's still legs in, you know, there's still some some food in the bottom of the can on, I think, I think on the what, megapixel side. I think what's happening for that. a lot of people, though, is they're, they're realizing how much disk space they're going through. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, when they when they start shooting that mu- that many images, mm-hmm. and and what could they use? To- 
<laughs> Did you like that? Did you like that? I, I threw the. I threw this. Uh, the, the, see, you can't laugh when I give you a segue. Though. Yeah, well, see, you were looking at me. I could not laugh. <laughs> so, so they're going through all this disc space. Of course, they want to talk to our sponsor, Drobo.com. Drobo.com. Uh, we don't have Steve here. We can't find out about the the, the Drobo saga. But he's kind of gotten to the other side of it. I think. I think mm-hmm. he's. Um, um, he is. Uh, he's there. So of course, Drobo is uh, is the most intelligent automated storage device ever made. Yeah. Of course, that, according uh-huh. to that. Now, do they say that, or are you saying that? They said that. They say that. Oh. But but I but I you know I have to say that when when we think about getting deep storage, you know we we have this kind of mixture of what we need in the office. Mm-hmm. So when we're going super fast storage, then we're getting eSATA, you know, four drives that are that are eight hundred dollars in enclosure, and then packing it with it, and and those are running at three hundred megabytes a second or four hundred megabytes a second. Um, but they're not very stable, you know. They're not. That's that's what you work on, but not where you save things. Yeah. And so, uh, and I have to admit, after after using the Drobo for us, the big thing has been is just that RAID five just seems to be, uh, you know, it, it's just it, tedious. Yeah, you know that I have to have all the same drives, and they have to be the same makes, and they have to be, you know, and and if and if, if I need to change a drive, you know, it's not trivial. So it's almost like X raid for the rest of us. Right? Yes, I mean, or just raid raid five for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. You know, not not having to think about it. I would never tell someone who's non technical to build a raid five. You know, it really is something that I you know if if, if someone's non technical and they ask me what we should be you know what what should i be putting my all my images on it's mm-hmm. definitely you know the easiest thing that i know is going to work is and that's the photographers yeah photographers yeah. they want to be shooting and or you know playing with their photos they don't want to have to worry about oh are these photos going to be here tomorrow yeah and, they, and i want to take this i want to, i just want to pull you know this drive went bad or i'm full i can pull the drive out i can push a new one with rumors now that the two sometime this week or next week uh the, there's rumors that there's going to be the two uh, terabyte drives mm-hmm. Yep. You know, coming out. Yeah, uh, that's going to make a huge difference. Uh, now we're going to be able to. Yeah, have- which, which also means that the 1.5s are going to get very cheap. So yeah. it's great either way. Right. Exactly. I was just going to say, Alex. Uh, I know you're going to have a bunch of extra 1.5 terabyte drives. <laughs> so you know, we just cleared. We just cleared space. We now have like 2,500. Uh, gig drives, you know, really. But we look at it, we go, like, you can't put those in a Drobo now. They're too small. Uh-oh. You know, like it's so funny. Look at these. It's so funny. To look at a 500 gig drive and just go. I don't even know what I'm going to use it for. I'm like, See, what, what can you put you. on a 500 gig that's drive? That's you. That's you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how so much? How much data do you generate a week? Uh, yeah. We we burn through about two terabytes a week. Yeah. See. So it's uh and and, and I you, think that may be our uh, one of our, one of our giveaways is some of Alex's used hard drives. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah with a disclaimer. Don't this let may my, fail on you. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. yeah we it's an old drive. Yeah. <laughs> Alex used it. It may not. Remember what he <laughs> talked about with the skis. <laughs> But they'd be fine to put in a Drobo or something because when they go bad, then you can just you know get a new one. That's awesome. Um, so anyway, so the uh, it's fifty dollars off for our listeners. Um, you can get a Drobo FireWire and USB uh, Drobo, and you go to DroboStore.com and then you use Twip as the coupon. Very good. And one thing Thanks, that Drobo. we we forgot to uh, mention before we got into the Drobo thing was the Twip Photo Challenge, and uh, we were going to do a poll to help us determine what the next challenge is going to be. So we were having a sort of internal discussion uh, before the show, I guess earlier this week, about going technical rather than, uh, you know, the uh, the one word or the vague theme. So the three, the three choices in this week's poll will be four trip photo challenges. Do you prefer technical technique challenges, such as the current shallow depth of field one that we have going on? 
Um, and be sure to check that out, by the way. Um, or the vague one-word themes that you can interpret, like decay, humor, color, that kind of thing. Or specific subject matter assignments, like things that are yellow or old buildings, you know, that kind of thing. So we want to know which, what you like, and then we'll, we will adjust our course accordingly. Excellent. And then on to the uh, Q&A. Finally, and we gotta we gotta speed this up a little bit. We I, like the it, just, it seems like it goes fast when you're hosting the show. It does, doesn't it? I know Ron has a hard out, and he's looking at his watch over there. Because when Ron said it, because I have a hard out. He said I have a hard out, but uh, but I'm sure we have plenty of time. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. yeah no we, worries. We can get a couple of questions in here. Okay. So, uh, listener Warren Cartwright says he's curious about how smaller res options in the 5D Mark II are managed in raw format. In the raw format, is it internal down sampling? Ron, do, yes. you, have, do you have any input uh, on I, this? I think it must be. I mean, I, I didn't you know, do the actual research that a responsible journalist would do to figure this out, but uh, I can't see how it would work any other way. I mean, the, so, I mean, the real question is, you know, there's two ways they could be doing this, and you know, how, how exactly is this technically handled with you've got a, the images that are smaller than what that sensor is capable of. So I think... What must be happening is that it's you know it's doing a hardware downsizing in camera before it writes it to the memory card. Yeah. And you know, is that a, a good thing or a bad thing or not? I mean, clearly it's going to mean that your memory cards don't fill up as fast. In my mind, that's the only reason why I would use that if I was really running short on space and I didn't care about uh, you know the ultimate quality of it. But realistically. Anything that you can do in software as a post-process is going to be at least as good as what they can do in hardware, and almost, you know, in most cases, it's going to be better. You're going to have more control over it. Yeah. So unless I was really in a situation where I just had to conserve space, it's, I would just shoot full resolution and then downsize it myself later and have control and know that I could get back to the original data. I mean, in, in terms of part of the question he's asking is, does he lose anything in terms of, uh, you know, sensitivity and, and noise and all that. And you shouldn't really lose anything there because it's still kind of using the internal raw format to keep the dynamic range that it's getting in there. But it is throwing away, you know, it's throwing away pixels. It's not just arbitrarily throwing away like every other pixel is doing a down sampling and taking them into account. But still, it's, uh, you know, memory cards are cheap. Just get another one. Well, and the other thing that I would say is that there are, if you use something like uh, Noise Noise Ninja or whatever, you can actually, if you're taking a really, really high-resolution image, you can actually increase the perceived sensitivity of that, of that camera by doing a little bit of noise reduction and then scaling down in software. You're going to be able to uh, you know, get something that, that actually works a little bit better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's so many reasons that, you know, having more... I mean, we, we, you know, we've always harped on there's a point where you... You know, you have enough resolution. Uh, but really, I think the, the point was more related to sensitivity, where everybody was stressing over resolution and ignoring sensitivity. And it's not like you can say that there is enough resolution uh, so much as you know, it's got to be a good balance. And if we finally nail the sensitivity stuff a little bit more, I think there's still room for growth and having a little bit more resolution, but not nearly as important. Do you guys think it's still raw if it's downsampled internally, technically? Terminology. Yeah, it raw. It's raw in the sense that it preserves the the you know super whites, the the highlights and the shadows uh, better than a JPEG would. Right. Uh, but you know, technically, is that really raw off the sensor? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not. But these days, I mean, if you look at the LX3, you're not really getting raw off the sensor either. They do right. some 
something as well, I think. So. Yeah. Next question. Um, this is an interesting one. It's from um, Jose Jasso. And he says, uh, I have a pressing question I was hoping you could help with. Um, I've been asked to, I've been tasked with shooting school portraits at my son's school. And he wants to know, how do you manage the color? How do you change the color of a background other than physically flipping a cloth, cloth behind the subject? Is there a way to do it in Photoshop, Lightroom, or Nick? He's planning on purchasing one muslin pro background and would love to be able to offer the parents a choice of how to change that color. I have, I have an, uh, an opinion on that. Actually, two opinions. I know in Photoshop, you can use the color change to select a range of colors and then drag a slider and change those to whatever hue you want. Uh, but the problem is if you have a subject in front of that, you know, you're going to have to do some cleanup work to make sure you, know, you don't have any spillover if there are similar colors in your subject and the background. I think a better way to do that, to change the color of a muslin background, would be to, for him to purchase a neutral gray muslin background and get a bunch of Roscoe color gels and gel his lights and whatever flat whatever flash that you aim at that background with a gel on it the background will take on that color and you know depending on how washed out or saturated you want it you can adjust the light accordingly uh just make sure that the light that's gelled is not spilling on your subject so you're going to have to use you know some sort of in-between gobo or something to uh to control the light better but that would seem like it would be the most uh cost effective way to get a multiple array of background choices for your customers what do you guys think you know, we uh, I I think that doing it in camera, especially when you need to do a lot of them mm-hmm. and fast, uh, oftentimes makes the most sense. We, <clears throat> excuse me, we uh, in, internally here, of course, we have a big green screen wall, so we just shoot everybody in front of green screen, and then right. we use a uh, an unspill uh, calculation, which typically is used to remove the green. But what we're what we're able to do is use a raw mat to be able to control kind of the that color. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're using. Uh, so you could either use something that like what we're doing in something like conduit, or you could use Photoshop and do exactly what you're saying, which is if you shot it in green and no one wore green, you know, you could change people's, you know, you could very easily select that green, you know, get a get a real tight, you know, if you light it well, mm-hmm. um, get a real tight target that that Photoshop can look at, and then you could easily move that that around. If they have any green in 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 the foreground, and if they have green eyes or anything else, they may end up moving along with it. <laughs> so if you make yeah. it a red background and they have green eyes, they, they might look a little scary. But it's all on the layer, so they, so could, it, you know, they yeah. could tweak it and use it. So a lot of brush. it is just, is just trying to decide. Uh, a lot of it is deciding how much post work you want to do. Yeah, uh, you yeah definitely. I think it's very much uh, it's, you know, it's the kind of stuff we wrestle with in visual effects all the time, right? Is it cheaper, in, you know, using a variety of measurements of cheaper to do it on set versus fixing it in post? And, you know, there's a lot of factors are an easy answer. I mean, even if you are just changing the gels on the light, there's, there's a time hit for that, you know, depending on how you've got it set up. If you're, you know, taking big gels and trying to close pin them to a couple of different lights, you know, for every new photo that comes in, that may not be as time effective as doing it in post. But on the other hand, you know, you're not fast or you don't have tools that can do it in post that'll take you less than a few seconds, then it may be a better way to go. So you're kind of going to have to know what's the real pipeline start to finish and what's going to be best for you. Or you could just go buy a bunch of backgrounds. Buy a bunch of <laughs> well, and, and yeah. there's there's you know seem, like seamless backgrounds. You know, if you go to a photography store for you know a, a not a very um, expensive amount of money, you can have a bunch of things you can just kind of roll down. Yeah, uh, that that can change that color very quickly. So yeah, that 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 quickly gets to be a pain, especially like really like Ron was saying, if you got that 
queue of people that are walking yeah. through. If you're really and, trying to crank through and get, you know, one shot a minute or something, that that that, you know, that may not be enough time to change a background effectively and get somebody new positioned in front of it and, right. you know, get things set up. So. And you want to decide whether it's really worth it. Yeah. 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 Right. So yeah. that's the that's the other uh, the piece of it. The other piece of it. We got time for one more question, Alex. And this one's for you. Um, it's from listener Dave Pace. Um, it's referring to the uh, the caseless drive interface that you mentioned. It says, Alex, you uh, you had a source for a storage case for external hard drives that are not in an enclosure. Could you let us know what the source is for that? Okay, well, there's two, and one of them I can't. I don't. I don't know how you'd buy in the United States. <laughs> and then one of them is the one that we that that we've used internally. So this is for if you have internal drives. We we have uh, probably at any one time fifty to sixty internal drives that are floating around the office here that we don't. You know, they're not in enclosures because it's a lot cheaper. We have a lot of data. Uh, we, we mostly what we need to do is back that data up because we have raids. We have two X raids that we. Uh, that is our online production storage. Then we have RAIDs built into every Mac Pro here. Uh, so each Mac Pro that we have has a, um, uh, right now, 1.5 terabyte. We're about to move it to a 4.5 terabyte uh, RAID 0 in each one of them so that they perform quickly and we can store, you know, move stuff around there. Yeah. But we need to back that up and make sure it's somewhere else. And the cheapest way to do that is use these these internal drives what yeah. you need to do is be able to interface with them and there's a bunch of different interfaces we can, that's a whole other discussion but uh we use the, we use the the Webatech ultra interface the ultra 4 interface uh, Webatech, yeah. and then Webatech also makes a case it's a hard case and it looks like a uh, it looks like if you if you were buying a a, can, a high-end tape case for hd cam or hd cam, or an hdsr uh or even like DV tapes that that you buy professionally, mm-hmm. you get this nice little case that that opens up kind of like a book, yeah. and you put your your tape case and then you close it. In the same way, they, Webatech makes one for the for the internal drives. You can just set it in there and close it up, and it's and you can write on the outside just like it was a tape because really? that's kind of what it is for you if you're backing up. The one problem with the Webatech is that it's very hard to open, which is sometimes good. It never accidentally opens. Yeah. Uh, the uh, so so you can have these these cases. Um, when I was in Japan, one thing is Jap- in Japan drives are really expensive, and enclosed drives are I mean three times what they are in the United States. And so there is definitely a big industry around the internal drive market, and there's lots of cases in Japan. So if you go to like Big Camera in Ginza, you'll, you'll find just you know a whole section dedicated to raw drive interfaces and in their in their cases and. One of the ones that I found in in in, uh, in big camera, and I don't know what the name of it is. It's, it's like you know, it's a, it was all it was all in Japanese. You know, you know, it was, it was uh, so. It, it in, but I'm 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 trying to find them now. And if and if you're listening and you know where I can find these, then you send it in. and We'll talk about it. But it was a rubber case, and it would actually just slip on like a rubber sheath around it, and it had it was cut right where the interface is. And so what's great about it is there's a lot of companies that make these interfaces that you can drop the the drive straight into the you know, into the reader. Like a cartridge kind of It's thing. like a cartridge. You yeah. just drop the drive in. Well, this, the pop, the top part of the rubber would actually come off and it was just the right amount so you could drop it into one of these, uh, into one of these cartridges. Cool. And so you could keep the rubber on it and it, it actually has an interlocking on it so that you can stack them and they won't just slide against each other. And it's rubber, so they don't slide around. It gives a little bit of a shock resistant. Mm-hmm. And so for the stuff that was important to us, we, I started buying those. Now they're 10 bucks each but when you look at protecting a drive that you saved 100 bucks by not buying an enclosure it's kind of a nice trade-off um i will admit that a large portion we buy drives um, by the 20s 
oftentimes, and you know, the internal drives by the 20s. And so they come in the actual styrofoam that they shipped in. And so we have a lot of them just stored in the styrofoam there. I've, I've seen that in, in their the static cases, in their, in their, in their, uh, in their static cases. But yeah. uh, if you want to, especially if you want to send them to somebody or carry them around, you should definitely not put them in your, in your backpack in their static bag. You really want something that's going to protect them. And something like the Weebatech, uh is a, is, a, um, is a great little case. All right. Guys, I got to run. All right. And, and so do we. Yep. Looks like right. we're, at the, we're at the end. Before you go, uh, Ron, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ron Brinkman or digitalcomposting.com. Awesome. And Aaron? You can find me at uh, my blog, halfpress.com, or on the Twitter, it's halfpress, H-A-L-F-P-R-E-S-S. And Mr. Lindsay? I'm on the Twitters. All of them. All of the Twitters. And also, I want to add that Alex uh, graciously agreed to do an interview with me for my blog. And it's on, it's, yeah. And it's live now. Where is it? Where is it? FrederickVan.com. Yes. Com. And that's where you can find me. <laughs> <laughs> he, he somehow got me to stay his. Where, he, where you can find him. I, I see how this is. Exactly. The, These are not the droids you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, uh, uh, it was funny. I, I've been getting emails about. <laughs> Your, your your blog is very is very successful. I, I've been getting these emails. I love the video you did on Frederick Mann, and I was like, "And what video?" Because I, I I see Frederick so often that I that I that I don't think about like I forget that we we're shooting videos some of the time we're talking. So. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so, so you can blog find blog. that at uh, FrederickVan.com, and I'm also on the Twitters under the same name, Frederick Van. Next week we're hoping to talk. We're hoping to talk to Aaron and maybe Steve if he's if he's doing it uh, about shooting at the inauguration. That's right. Yeah, It'll be fun. Hope Steve can be there. I'm waiting to hear from him. Yeah, he's getting chased by bears in Yosemite right now. I think. <laughs> yeah, with Scott Bourne. Very cool. Very cool. All right, guys. Well, thanks a lot. It looks like uh, another twip and my first time hosting twip. It's time to put the or take the lens cap 